Good morning, everyone. It is really great to be with you here this morning and on this first Sunday of Advent. Great to be looking forward to celebrating the birth of our Lord together. And it's exciting to be here. This is my second worship service, actually, because the first worship service is when we do the run-through early, and, and none of you are here for that, and we get to go ahead and sing all of the songs and work through everything together. So I am, I am just kind of all pumped and excited right now because we got to go through a worship set and then another worship set, and I've got one more to go, and uh, God is just so good. I'm so thankful that he came here, that he saved us, and for what he continues to do in our lives. And I hope you're excited about that too. Uh, We're going to launch into a new series this morning that I think is important, but before I do that, I just want to give you an update on how things are going with me and my family because we're still new here. We've been here just over a month now, which is really exciting, and we're starting to kind of get our bearings on how things are working here in the church. And it'll take a long time. We're trying to learn as we go. There's a lot to, everybody keeps describing it as drinking from a fire hose. And that is exactly how it feels because there is a tremendous amount of information to take in and absorb. And every church has different ways of doing things. And so I'm learning all of those right now, but it really has been wonderful. And I'm enjoying every minute of it. I really truly am. As we go through this process, there's so much to learn and so much to get involved. And of course, we're not even in our permanent home yet. We did buy a home or we're in the process of buying a home rather. We haven't closed on it yet, but we'll get there in a couple of weeks and moving the family in and getting all these other details set here at the church. There's just a lot that goes into uh, leading a church like this and of this size and a lot of things to learn. And so I ask that you would just be praying for me and for my family and for the staff here that has to put up with me asking a bazillion questions. How do we do this? How do we do that? And why? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And just learning all of those things. And a part of this process that we're in here, still this transition phase is that the uh, preaching time is going to still be very much shared between different pastors and myself. So next week, Pastor Don is going to be preaching to us. The week after that, it's going to be John, and then I'll be back here again to preach. And really, for the next few months, uh, the way we've worked this out now is I'm going to be preaching about 60% of the time here. And the reason for that is because otherwise there would be absolutely no way that I could get caught up on so many other things happening here, both for my family and for the church here. So really it's a, it's a healthy thing that we're doing kind of a gradual ramp up. John and Don will be kind of ramping down a little bit and focusing on some other areas and I will be gradually ramping up and speaking and preaching more and more. So for the next few months, that's what you're gonna see. But also if you ever wanna know who is speaking that week, we are now putting this on our website on the homepage. You can see the next four weeks of messages messages, who's speaking, what they're going to be speaking on, and that way you'll just kind of come prepared and knowing for all of that. Next week, we are going to talk a little bit more about the leadership structure of the church and where we're going as a church, because this is a time where we're evaluating, and I'm evaluating our staff and figuring out where we need to go with different things, working with the elders and pastors and leaders on that. So make sure you're back here next week as we'll have some announcements to share about those things. Well, today we are launching into a new series called Noel, the Songs of Christmas. And Noel is an interesting word. Does anyone know what Noel means? I honestly didn't before looking it up a couple of weeks ago. I I realized Noel, Noel, what exactly does that refer to? We all know the song that goes, Noel, Noel. You know, the first Noel the angels did say and all of that. So we know that, but what exactly does that mean? I had to do a little research and go back and and learn my history on this. And evidently, it comes from a Latin word, natal. 
And Natal is where we get the word neo-nail from. So it still kind of has its remnants in our culture today. It's also related to the word nativity. And it basically refers to a birth. It means related to some kind of a, a birth. And it started to become used to refer to some sort of important or prominent birth. And Natal became Natalis, and eventually it was shortened, taking out the middle constant to Nael, and eventually it became Noel. It came through the French and the English, and we ended up with the word today, Noel. And early on in its usage, it was used to refer to the birth of Jesus Christ. But eventually, it started to become used about proclamations about the birth of Jesus Christ, and those proclamations tended to be put to music in the monasteries, and so you ended up with Noel's being these songs of proclamation about the birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, we could probably just call our series Noel the proclamations of Christmas, because that's what so many of these songs are. So for the next few weeks, and this was, this was planned before I got here, so we're continuing on with the, the strategy that was put in place by John and Don. We are going to look at four traditional Christmas songs. Today is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we're gonna trace back the roots of where these songs came from, as best we know, and what theology they are rooted in. And that's really important because you know now that it's after Thanksgiving and we can legally listen to Christmas music, I have been watching Christmas videos and Christmas music and seeing different specials on TV. And one of the things that always amazes me, I don't know if this amazes you, but it amazes me, to be watching someone who I know from what I read in the news, their lifestyle does not in any way reflect biblical principles. But they can get up there and they can sing, what child is this? Which talks about this little baby. When you've kissed this little baby, it's the very face of God. And I go, do you mean that? Or they sing songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing or, or I was watching a, a special and they lit up the Christmas tree in New York last week and there are all these politicians and you know really godly people and actors and actresses and prominent individuals gathered around and then this choir breaks out as they light the tree up and, and they sing joy to the world the Lord has come. And it just struck me as odd. And I thought to myself as I'm watching these people who I know something about their lives from what we see on the news, and then here we are singing joy to the world, the Lord has come. And the thought that hit me, the question was, do you really believe that? Do you really believe what you're singing? And so it kind of amazes me when I see those things. And of course, that makes me think about us this morning as we were singing. Did we really understand or were we just going through the motions Were we actually singing out as praise to God, as proclamation, declaration to each other about who our God is, as prayer to God, all of these different things that we do when we're singing? Are we doing that from the heart or are we just singing because everyone else is singing? And that's why I think what we're about to do is really, really valuable. It'll be different. It's a different kind of series. This is not a walk through a book of the Bible kind of series, but this is a great opportunity even if you want to invite friends and neighbors to come and hear about some of the history and background behind some of these great old Christmas songs that also just so happen to have incredible truth and theology. In fact, when we're singing these songs, we're really proclaiming truth. We are proclaiming theology. There is some rich theology in these Christmas songs. But when we do that, we want to make sure we understand what we're singing, why we're singing it. So that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning is these these songs of Christmas starting with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So I'm really looking forward to it. 
as we look at this song, I'm gonna start by just putting the lyrics on the screen for you. And I'm gonna give you a bit of a translation as we go because some of the words are a little hard to understand, the phrases, and I'm not gonna do every verse, but we'll do a couple of verses here. And as we're going, I'm just gonna give you the song lyrics as they are. And then I'm gonna give you the ABV, which is the Adam Bowers version. It's just gonna be our translation of what they mean. For, for some of these, it'll be helpful. So first of all, the verse one says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And why we say Israel instead of Israel, I don't know. But Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Here's the translation of that. Please come, Jesus, Emmanuel, Son of God, and rescue the sad, captive, and exiled Israelites. So none of this is inspired. This is just my interpretation of this verse. Then we come to a refrain which says, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And the translation, yea, yea, we're excited, we're happy. Jesus is coming to the people of Israel. Verse two, O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. What does that mean? Please come, powerful God, who gave the Old Testament law in an awesome way on Mount Sinai. That's what that means. Verse three, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Here's the translation. Please come like the morning sun, Jesus. Please remove this sadness and make us happy by your coming and banishing evil and death. And then the refrain again, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Yea, yea, Jesus is coming to the people of Israel. And then there's this extra chorus that got added to our song today, kind of a modernization of it, and the chorus simply goes, rejoice, 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 rejoice. Repeat that a couple of times. My translation of that is pretty simple. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is quite possibly the oldest Christmas song we have. It was written sometime probably in the 8th or 9th century. We don't know who authored it. Uh, we, we think that it may have been some kind of a, a monk, maybe, that wrote this. And it was originally part of a series of seven songs written in Latin called the Antiphons. And the Antiphons were songs that were sung by choirs. Two choirs would sing this. One would sing one, one would sing the other. And they would sing the Antiphons in a way that they would lead up to the birth of Christ. So it was kind of an Advent-related singing that would happen. And the purpose of this was to focus people on the real reason for the season. The real reason why we celebrate this. To get people's minds off of what was going on in their daily lives and get them to focus on the birth of Jesus Christ. And so, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel was, was one of the early antiphons that, that shared about the desire for the Messiah to come to Israel. Now, the song was lost for hundreds of years, as far as we know, and then rediscovered by a man named John Mason Neal in the 1800s, and he added it to a songbook, and that is how it became part of our Christmas tradition today. It really was only rediscovered in the 1800s. And to understand the meaning of this great old Christmas hymn, we really have to go back to the beginning of creation to understand why would God need to come to his people. Why? And that's what Advent means, by the way. Advent means coming. Advent means there is, there is someone who is coming and it's important, it's a big deal. 
That's why we celebrate Advent. Why would God need to come? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Isn't God omnipresent? Isn't God everywhere at once? Isn't God all over the place? Why would we sing that he needs to come? Well, let me share with you a couple of verses here that show God's omnipresence. First of all, Jeremiah 23, 23 says, am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I am far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and earth, says the Lord? And one more, Psalms 139, verses seven and eight says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. So God is everywhere. The Bible attests that God is what we call omnipresent. Omni all present places. He is in every place at once. And I can't fully comprehend that. I can't understand how God can be in all places at once. But that is what the Bible says. It's what the Bible teaches. And I believe it to be true. But if God is omnipresent, if God is in all places at once, then why would we sing, O come, O come? And that's why we have to go back to the creation to understand what was happening in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Right at the beginning of the Bible, God created this world, and when he did, he created people, and he actively engaged with them. When he created Adam and Eve, he had a relationship with them. He was able to talk with them and walk with them and converse with them. Genesis 2, 16 says that the Lord warned him, the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And I'm not focused so much on the content of that. What I'm focused on is the fact that God talked to Adam. God was able to converse with him, to interact with him. There was a closeness to their relationship where they could talk and converse with each other. Genesis 3.8 says that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, it says, the man and his wife, that's Adam and Eve, heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. There is an intimacy and a nearness of God in the garden a closeness that God has with his created people, a relationship that he has with them, which is incredibly unique. He's not just a God, he's their God. He's not just the creator, he's their shepherd who guides them and instructs them. And this closeness that God had, this relationship with them, was threatened then when Satan, who was also created by God, decided to try to tempt people to break this relationship that they had with God, to get them to follow after him and rebel against God. And without going into all the specifics and details, because that's not the, the purpose this morning, unfortunately, we all know and can attest that Satan was successful in that first effort. He was able to tempt the people, the first people, Adam and Eve, to sin against God, to dis- disobey, to rebel against him, and as such, they broke off that relationship, that closeness that they had with God. Now, God was still omnipresent. God was still everywhere. But because of that breaking of that closeness and relationship, now the children of Adam and Eve and their children and their children lost that special closeness that they had with God, their creator. And over time, this led to whole nations of evil people, wicked people who would do despicable, horrible things because they had no closeness, no relationship, no following after God. Two of those nations were Assyria and Babylon. 
And both Assyria and Babylon and some others, but these were the big ones, had at one point captured and exiled the people of the nation of Israel. And that's what we're talking about in this song when we say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that's exiled here. This is thinking back to the time when the nation of Israel was held captive by one of these wicked nations, Assyria and Babylon are the primary ones, who had exiled Israel and taken them all over the world, taken them away from their homeland. And so the song puts us into their shoes. But this also, by the way, was not just the result of these evil nations, Assyria and Babylon. This was the Israelites' own sin that brought them to this point, that loss of closeness with God, that relationship. And this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it puts us in their shoes. It asks us to think back to a time when Israel was captive and longing to go back to their homeland, longing for God to rescue them, longing for these prophecies that they had about a Messiah to come true and for God to bring them out of exile and into a land that would be their own. And so they are crying out to the God who created the law, the song talks about. God created the law on Mount Sinai. They're crying out to this God who created the law that they did not follow. They're crying out to the day spring. That is the sunrise. It's a beautiful picture of God and really of Jesus Christ. This same terminology is used of him in the New Testament. The sunrise that breaks the shadows of night and puts death away. Amazing imagery. They're crying out to God who would be the savior to disperse the gloomy clouds and put away death. They are lowly and mourning while they are in exile. And then there's this response of the refrain. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. The key to understanding this incredible song is in that name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What does that mean? Why do we sing that? Well, it actually comes from the Bible and from a couple of places. The main one we're going to look at this morning is Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 1. If you want to and you have a digital device, you can go to the YouVersion Bible app. And there we've plugged in all of the verses that we're going to go through this morning. So there's a lot of scripture that we're going to talk about, but all of that is waiting for you in the YouVersion Bible app, or you can follow along in your Bibles there if you would like to. Matthew chapter 1, if you're there, we're going to start in verse 1. We're basically going to read the whole chapter here of Matthew chapter 1. He says in verse 1, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashan. Nashan was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. You didn't think we were going to do it, did you? Actually read a genealogy in the morning service. But we're doing it. We're doing this thing. We're, we're too far in now. We've got to keep going. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. 
And Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers born at the time of the exile to Babylon. That's important. We have a tie back here to the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad. Abiad was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathen. Mathen was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Now, I am willing to bet that you did not come here this morning thinking that we were going to read a genealogy as part of our text. And you may be wondering, why is this even in there? I remember when I was a kid reading through the Bible and I got to these sections and I went, huh? This is boring. I'm here to learn about Jesus. I don't need the family tree, but you do. We do need the genealogy. We do need the family tree. Here's why. Matthew is about to share with us his gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, and he wants us to understand that this is nothing new. This is nothing isolated. This is not a new religion. This is not abolishing the old. This is a completion of it. This is all tied back into what happened in the Old Testament. And so when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, we have to understand there was an exile. There were multiple exiles. There was a situation that needed to be corrected. There was a problem that existed that Jesus, the Messiah, came to solve. Not to do away with the old, but to complete it. Jesus came not to establish a brand new religion because the religion of Israel failed. This was in the works from the beginning. This is something that you can trace back through the Old Testament to see. This, was, this is what was prophesied about all along. And Matthew's gonna make that case for us. We're gonna get into that in just a little bit. But before he does, he wants us and his original audience to understand this is not something brand new that came out of nowhere. This all ties back into Judaic history. These are the people that led up to this. In essence, one of the things that he's saying here is, guys, this is real. This is legitimate. And at times, secular scholars and scientists have claimed that different people on this list never existed. In fact, it wasn't until recently that most secular scholars believed King David was really a figment of, of literary history, that he didn't actually exist until they started to find stuff with his name on it that dated to the period when the Bible says he would have reigned. And they started to find stuff that proved that it really was a kingdom. And archaeology has again and again proven this list here to be true. This is an incredibly important list. And I'm not sure if I would always read out a genealogy in Scripture. I'm not saying that when we get to Leviticus, we're just going to go through that whole thing. We might summarize a few pieces. But this genealogy is worth having in here. This is important because it ties the old with the new. And it shows why Jesus came. And we're going to get into that in a minute here. So the genealogy is important. It links back to the ancestors. And remember, Matthew is writing at a time when there are a lot of Jewish people who knew their history. They knew these people. 
Matthew didn't have to convince people that these individuals existed in history. And so he is tying back into truth that they already know and believe. So Matthew goes on. Verse 18, he moves from this genealogy now to talk about the birth of Christ. Verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. In other words, he did not want to expose the fact that she had become pregnant while a virgin because, of course, most people would not believe she was a virgin. It doesn't usually happen that way. It doesn't ever happen that way. And so he did not want to expose that she had become pregnant. So what he did is he decided to break the engagement quietly. He could have made a big deal about it. And, and the reason he would have wanted to make a big deal about it is because in doing that, he would have exonerated himself. See, it's possible that even though they're not married yet, maybe the baby is actually Joseph's. And so by, by Joseph making a big stink and saying, oh, 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 I'm not gonna marry her because clearly she's had relations with someone. She is pregnant. It is not mine. Break that off. His integrity remains intact. Her integrity goes down the tubes, but his integrity remains intact. But Matthew says he was a righteous man. He wanted to do the right thing. And even though he thought that probably she had slept with another man, he decided instead of to expose her publicly to just break off the engagement quietly. And how do we know that he thought she had probably had relations with another man? Well, it's because of what we read in the next verse. Verse 20 says this, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit and she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so it took an angel visiting Joseph to say, hey, look, this really is of God. And Joseph believed. And he took Mary as his wife. And now Matthew's gonna connect some dots for us. So we have the genealogy. We have the depiction of Jesus' birth and the miraculous that happens there, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, a righteous man, a visit from an angel telling him, go ahead and marry, uh, marry, <laughs> become married to Mary. Now that sounds weird. And then Matthew is gonna connect all of these dots for us in verse 22. He says this, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. What Matthew is describing here in the beginning of his gospel is not some new religion. It's not something that came out of nowhere. This is rooted in the ancient. This is rooted back in the prophets of Judaism. This is not something new. He wants to tie it all together. And so he is taking a prophecy that happened over 700 years ago by the prophet Isaiah. This comes from Isaiah 7:14. We're going to look there in a minute. He's taking this prophecy and he is tying it into Jesus. And so Isaiah 7:14 14 says this. All right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. What Matthew is telling us here 
is that this Emmanuel that the people of Israel longed for, this Emmanuel, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He's not something brand new. He's something that completes what God has been doing all along. This is why the genealogy is important. It ties us back from the old to the new. And even the way that Matthew and Isaiah describe this Emmanuel is critically important. Matthew tells us what the word means, Emmanuel, God with us. And it literally means that. Im is with, Anu is us, and El is God. With us, God, or God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And why this is important is because if you remember back to the Israelites who are in exile in Babylon and before that in Assyria, different groups of Israelites in exile, they are feeling incredibly disconnected from God. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Why? Not because he wasn't all around them, not because he wasn't omnipresent still, but because that special relationship that they had with the Creator, that closeness, that daily provision, that relationship, that was broken. And so they could say, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel. And of course, the, the song is meant to give us an idea of what their experience may have been like. This is describing a God God with us, a God who wants to be with us. Emmanuel, Isaiah says. Matthew says this applies to Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Stop and think about that for a moment. The God who created everything you see around you right now, the God who created the people in this room, the chairs that you're sitting on, this building, the world, the universe, that God describes himself as God with us. God who wants to be with us. And it teaches us something amazing about the God that we serve. God is inherently, by his very nature, relational. God is a relational God. He's always been a relational God. And you might say, how can he be a relational God before anything else was created? Well, because he exists in three persons. He exists in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our, um, our statement of faith says this, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has always been a relational God in perfect loving unity with the other two persons of the Trinity. These three parts of the Godhead who have a relationship with each other since before we even existed. And this relational God now says he wants to have a relationship with us. And so he even calls himself God with us. That's an incredible thing. That's very different than the way the pagans of the day viewed gods as these distant beings that warred with each other and occasionally came down to mess with people. That maybe if you did the right things would bless you or curse you and they were very fickle gods or a deistic view of God, a God that creates the universe and then just sort of steps back and lets it go. The Bible says that God is very different than that, that he is a God who wants to have a relationship with us. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that we so often do not treat God like God with us. We treat him like the God that saved us that one time. We treat him like the God that, yeah, we we said those words and we trusted in him and, and we're believers now, But is he God with us? Is he God that has a relationship with us? God in his very nature is a relational God. At the end of Matthew, when Jesus gives his disciples the great commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, he says this, therefore go 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am what? With. I am what? With. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus' message to his followers was, I'm gonna be with you. I am the God who is with. Not just the God who created not just the God who made this happen, not just the God who saved you, I'm the God who is with you. Jesus bridged the gap between us and God. Jesus tore the curtain that separated us from God. Jesus made it possible for us to have that closeness, that relationship with God again, to have access to Jesus who is God, but also to God the Father because of Jesus bridging that relational gap. And the problem with many Christians today is that we attend church we, we might even put a fish bumper sticker on our car. We do other things that make us look all Christian-y. Of course, we've got to post the obligatory Bible verse on social media every now and then. But do we really live like God is with us? Do we really live like God is with us? And I just want to ask you one simple question this morning. After hearing all of this, after learning what it means to say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, I just have one question for you. What will your relationship with God look like tomorrow? What will your relationship with God look like on Tuesday afternoon? What will your relationship look like Saturday morning? Not just Sunday, but every day. This is the God who wants to be with us. This is the God who wants to have a relationship with us. And we can come into this building and put on our smiles and open our Bibles and do the Christian stuff, but if it doesn't make a difference Monday through Saturday, then how real was this here? This is a God who by his very nature wants to have a relationship with us. And we so often get distracted by everything else that's around us that keeps us from having that closeness with God. He wants to be there with us. Early on in my marriage, later on this month, my wife and I have been married for 10 years. And um, we didn't always have things perfectly figured out, you know, like we do now. Early on, that's a joke, just to be clear. Early on in our marriage, my wife and I worked in the same missions ministry for a number of years. And so we worked together for hours every day. We worked together we um, at night would come home this is before we had kids would maybe put a show or a movie on TV would sit there with our computers and would work on our respective areas in the ministry and, and we, if a question came up would talk to each other about it would plan and work through the ministry and all these things and, and one day my wife looked up to me at me across the living room and said hey I wonder if maybe sometime we could spend some time together and in my male brain I'm thinking these last four hours don't count I've been sitting right here the whole time in the same room with you that doesn't count? That's not, that's not time together with you? We, we work together for hours a day, and now you're telling me you want to spend more time together? I don't even know what that looks like. Of course, that's not what she meant. Proximity does not equal relationship. We might look like we're close with God, but are we actually connecting with him? Are we actually reading his word? Are we communicating with him? Are we spending time in prayer? Are we relating to God throughout the day? What's your relationship with God look like on a Tuesday afternoon, on a Friday morning, on a Saturday evening? Are you connected with God, the God who wants to be with you, who wants to have a relationship with you? Last week, my son walked into the living room where we're staying right now. It's a temporary house. 
And he asked me, because this is the only place I have to study, basically. So I, I study in the living room. We've got, really, we've got three bedrooms and two rooms, a living room and a kitchen. So I'm studying in the living room, good godly thing to do. And my son walks in and says, hey, dad, could I watch a show? He hadn't had any TV yet. Sure, you can watch a show. That's fine. I put it on the screen and he walked over to the couch, sat down. And about five minutes later, as I'm sitting there studying, he looks at me and goes, dad, I want you to watch it with me. See, I feel like there's some inherent value in me just being present and me just being in the room. And that for some reason is not the case. And we feel like there is some inherent value in us coming to church and checking the box and doing the Christian thing. And God is saying, but I want to have a relationship with you. Not just for you to come into this building once a week. I want to be with you. I want to relate to you. And we're going to have a little time of prayer right now. And so I'm going to ask everyone to just bow your heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm going to give you a a couple of minutes here. I'm going to ask you to do something maybe a little bit different. But right here, right now, there's nobody looking around. There's nobody else doing anything. It's just you and God. This is a time for you to connect with the God who wants to be with you. And it's a time for you to ask him, Lord, as we prepare to take communion together, is there something in my life right now that's been inhibiting my relationship with you? Ask God that right now. Lord, is there something, would you reveal to me anything that's been keeping me from you, the distractions that have been keeping me from having that relationship with you, God, with us? Just pray right now, and I'm gonna close this in prayer in a minute. Lord, we are so blessed to have a God who calls us his children and who says he wants to have a relationship with us. That you are not this far off God, but you are a God who cares about us, who wants to connect with us, to to love us. We are so blessed to have that kind of a God, but Lord, we so often fall short of the relationship that you want to have with us. And we allow the busyness of our lives, the hecticness of our schedule, whether it's sports or kids' activities or hobbies or work or even sometimes family, to get in the way of the most important relationship we could have, that relationship with you. So Lord, as we come before you now to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to share in this meal that that remembers what you did for us and the reason you came to this earth, I pray that you would help us, Lord, convict us of these areas where we need to prioritize you in our life and the relationship that you want to have with us. And we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.